Hello, my name is Mike Diedrich. I'm with uh, Veterans for Peace, Chapter 92. And this is the Veterans for Peace radio show on broadcast on KODX 96.9 FM. Uh, Veterans for Peace is an international organization, and I'd like to read our statement of purpose. We, having def- dutifully served our nation, do hereby affirm our greater responsibility to serve the cause of world peace. To this end, we will work with others towards increasing public awareness of the costs of war, to restrain our government from intervening overtly and covertly in the internal affairs of other nations, to end the arms race and to produce, reduce and eventually eliminate nuclear weapons, to seek justice for veterans and victims of war, and to abolish war as an instrument of national policy. To achieve these goals, members of Veterans for Peace pledge to use nonviolent means and to maintain an organization that is both democratic and open with the understanding that all members are trusted to act in the best interests of the group for the larger purposes of world peace. We urge all peoples who share this vision to join us. Today, uh, we're going to discuss uh, VA and healthcare. Uh, With me, of course, is Michael McPherson, my co-host for this program, and our guest, special guest, uh, Kelly Wadsworth, who is a former, captain in the United States Army and a former um, chaplain. Chaplain. <laughs> Couldn't say the word. Yeah. So um, it's uh, kind of an interesting because all, all three of us, uh, Michael, myself, and Kelly, are bo- are, have uh, take our health care at the VA, some of it anyway. So we're, we're able to uh, speak to that. Kelly will speak specifically. Uh, she per- appeared on a panel uh, a year ago or so on... Um, hosted at the University of Washington, and she spoke on behalf of Veterans for Peace. So, Michael, you got a couple of comments? Yeah, well, um, just want to say hello hello to everybody, and thanks for uh, listening to us again. Um, I'm not sure what uh, episode or show number this is, but um, we feel pretty good about having however many number it is. We feel pretty good about it. I think it's 10 or 11. I'm thinking the same thing. So yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm happy with that. I um, want to remind people we air every fourth Wednesday of the month from 6 to 7 p.m. on KODX 96.9 in Seattle, or you can listen to a live stream at KODXSeattle.org. You can also find uh, past episodes of our show on KODXSeattle.org. And um, we need to, we're going to get the, pretty much directly to the interview that we did. Remember that we do these um, because we, we're doing the social distancing and everything. We do these through Zoom. Um, so, but real quick, we wanted to talk about, not really talk about it, but just mention that the election is coming soon. Uh, so hopefully um, a month from now, when you listen to our next show, we'll know who has won. Probably won't know that night. So hopefully we'll know in four weeks. Um, also the healthcare, which is what we're gonna talk about today, but that's so much connected to the coronavirus. Um, so those were the things that I felt like we needed to at least mention. Yeah, it's very appropriate that we have the show at this time. Let's hope by the election next uh, shortly that uh, uh, the new president will actually do something. They'll actually do something about coronavirus. Right. <laughs> uh, it's a uh, it, it's basically a national disgrace the way he's acted. Yes. Uh, I, I'd like to say that I, uh, I've actually, during this thing, I've, I've had, had occasion to go to the VA and they're very well set up to do this uh, distancing and uh, 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 only necessary visits, that sort of thing. I had a blood test and uh, um, that was all I had. So they're, they're uh, very competently addressing the people who visit there and uh, get the necessary health care that they need. Right, they are. Um, again, I go every month and um, I took a COVID test um, and I didn't even have to, I, I think maybe it's because they were slow, but I didn't have to uh, do an appointment. So I was able to do that. Um, also, I got my flu shot. So at the time, they weren't doing it at the VA yet, uh, but they are now. But they told me to go to a CVS or a Walgreens or somewhere that they're getting yeah. shots. And I was able to get my shot there and, and um, the VA, of course, paid for it. So I thought that was good. So I wanted to say that about the flu shot because everybody, please get your flu shot this year. Some years, 
I have to admit, there's been a year or two that I skipped it, but I didn't this year. I didn't last year either. My mother's yeah. always on me. She kept asking me, so I had to get it. Now that you're an old man, Michael, you should take those flu shots. You're not, <laughs> you don't have the immunity that did you. Yeah, I got mine at Walgreens too. And, you know, you just show up there with your VA ID and, uh, you know, it's you're in and out in uh, 20 minutes. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. So I guess we should just go ahead and, and, and move on to, uh, to the interview with uh, Kelly. My name is Mike Diedrich. I'm with Veterans for Peace Chapter 92, and with me are Michael McPherson, uh, also with Veterans for Peace uh, 92, and Kelly Wadsworth, who is going to be our guest today on the VA and privatization. And Kelly was a uh, panelist on the uh, 2019 panel on uh, future of the VA privatization or the moral or the, is is a model for uh, a single payer system. And Kelly was the uh, Veterans for Peace organiz or, uh, representative on that panel. Incidentally, that panel was um, instituted or not instituted, but proposed by Veterans for Peace. I and some others proposed that the uh, University of Washington have sponsored this, this uh, program and it was aired there. And here is uh, Kelly's uh, testimony at that panel. Kelly. Good evening. I have the great pleasure to speak this evening as a post 9-11 Iraq war veteran. And I hope my comments here do a service to my sisters and brothers, both in the audience and those from recent wars. I served from 2001 to 2011 as an army chaplain with time spent in the National Guard, in the reserves, on active duty. My veteran perspective is equally informed by my experiences as a patient here in Seattle at the Seattle VA. From my vantage point, the future of the VA is best answered by looking to the future of veterans themselves. In September of 2017, seven years after my deployment to Iraq, I was working at a local nonprofit not too far from here when the front office called me to sign for a delivery. When I arrived, I discovered that it was Joe, the delivery guy, someone I had known, bringing a tank of helium that the director had ordered so that we could blow up our own balloons for our monthly birthday celebrations. Joe then proceeded to explain how I needed to securely attach the tank to a concrete post just in case it tipped over and inadvertently became a projectile missile. Upon hearing this, I slowly began to walk away from Joe and the death trap that he had so cavalierly brought into the building. Noticing the color draining out of my face and my sudden stuttering of words, Joe offered to carry the helium tank himself to our basement storage area while I returned to my office, visibly shaken. By the grace of God, one of my colleagues noticed my distress and offered to be the point of contact for all future helium deliveries. For you see, helium tanks look quite a bit like an IED or a roadside bomb. But I was never hit by one, so I was surprised by my response. But the soldiers in my unit were, and the service members at the base hospital where I worked were and I buried some of them. Not all of us carry a debilitating fear of helium balloons, but we do carry depression and anxiety and chronic pain and worn out knees and embedded shrapnel and toxic poisons and immune system problems, mysterious cancers, addiction, guilt, disassociation, and sadness. Comprehensive veteran health care, therefore, is a no-brainer. But veterans do not exist in a bubble. They exist as members of families, and they have spouses and partners and children and parents and relatives and neighbors and friends and coworkers. And all of these people need to be healthy 
for veterans to be healthy. The individual tasks that we carry can range from tending to the physical and psychological implications of brain injuries. It, we have to tend to absent limbs from roadside bombs. We tend to PTSD from deathly encounters. And we tend to an inexcusable suicide rate. But there are other tasks, collective ones, that us veterans also manage in our daily lives, but they are not ours alone to carry. Some of us have a spidey sense that works over time and is extremely perceptive at picking up disturbances in the force, things that are out of place, behavior that doesn't fit. These veterans are the guardians of our public spaces. There are others of us who can no longer bury our heads in the sand, pretending that the day-to-day -day decisions of ordinary civilians have nothing to do with the wars we wage overseas. These veterans are the guardians of our moral fiber. And still, for some of us, our experiences have carved canyons of sorrow so deep in our soul that it would take many lifetimes to grieve it all. These veterans are the guardians of life in a numb and distressed society. And these are some of the most important tasks that we can tackle, and every veteran I know is shouldering the weight of them in some kind of way. Which is why the question of privatization on the one hand and single payer on the other is best addressed by asking who exactly needs to be healthy. For society to be healthy, veterans need health care. For veterans to be healthy, the rest of society needs health care. Privatization has some similarities to contracting out, and we are 15 years into Middle East wars where we contracted out logistics, supply, food, water, security, and not to mention the other unsavory jobs that we paid to have done. And this is not a position, I would say, of integrity or honor. We should have three to four times the number of veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan that we do. And veteran healthcare is not like a cup of coffee or the purchase of a car or a mortgage on a home. Instead, it is a public good, more like roads and water and schools, things that need a high degree of integration and public support in order to work well. On the other hand, I'm also cautious about any endeavor which expands the federal government and I support a VA for all with both eyes open, understanding that due diligence and accountability are essential parts of the equation. I hung up my combat boots nine years ago. I packed my uniform away, and my salute is rusty. But the chaplain in me lives on, and my soldiers and their families need an integrated, streamlined system. I experienced this at the VA in ways that I did not experience it in the private sector. Thank you. Well, thank you for that, Kelly. Very uh, uh, personal and uh, concise description of your, your period in military and, and uh, healthcare. Uh, as I understand it, the VA has uh, outsourced some of its care. Uh, I am actually a VA uh, uh, participant in my own healthcare, but also one of the biggest problems in the VA is that there's some 40,000 plus positions, healthcare positions that are vacant, and they're vacant because the Congress is not funding these positions. So, could you comment on that, Kelly? Yes, our our VA system is currently one that we I think we are in the middle of deciding uh, to what degree we support it and to what degree that we see it as essential and needing to be fully funded with the positions fully um, employed so that the healthcare can happen to the degree that it needs to happen. And I think one of the things that we are living through now, it being late October in 2020, that the both both the flu season and our coronavirus season are shedding light on some of the ways that our healthcare system really is challenged and the ways that the VA can and perhaps should be a model for a more integrated system. 
we can now pick up the newspaper just about any day this week and hear stories of families who have to travel to two or three different locations just to get a flu shot. Uh, because one person is covered in one system, another person's covered in another system. We've got coronavirus tests with some folks getting bills for it, other folks not getting bills for it, and a general all-around convoluted system that really just doesn't help. The privatization that you mentioned, Mike, is a system whereby service members who get their health care at the VA are able to go out into the community. And sometimes this happens because either the VA has a backlog or there isn't that specific kind of provider at the VA um, or just simply out of choice. It's an option that you don't necessarily have to have a reason. And one of the things that strikes me is that it adds another layer of convoluted convoluted layers to healthcare um, for those who have begun to go out using con the contract system and using privatization may begin to notice that things like bills start to show up. And if there is a question around pay or payment, the veteran can be on the line for the payment of that. And if there is a dispute that can take quite a long time. Those things I consider part of care. And so it is less care when the veteran themselves has have to have a part-time job sorting through the bills and the paperwork and the pay system, that that is a burden that actually works against healthy and thriving veterans. Hey, Kelly, um, thanks for being on the show. I appreciate you uh, coming on again. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, there's a few things in that five, five or six minutes. Uh, you said a lot in those five or six minutes. Uh, one of the things you told the story about the helium container um, and how there was some fear from you, not necessarily based on the helium per se, it sounded like. So I want you to tell me if, it was, if I'm wrong about this. But um, experiences that you've had and others have had that the helium reminded you. And I guess I reason I'm bringing it up is because when you first started out, I was like, where is she going with this? Right. But then as you played it out, I started thinking about myself and how like the air show they have here every year, the last two years, because, you know, I'm new to Seattle. So the last two years, it actually um, brought out some post-traumatic stress that I didn't even know I had, you know? Uh, so I just wanted you to speak to that and how that really relates, relates to the VA. And you also mentioned guilt. Um, so if you could just speak to that, as opposed to like me going to, you know, whatever the hospital is here, you know, what, what are the, some of the expectations you would have that relate to me as a veteran maybe having post-traumatic stress or having guilt and me going to the VA. Cause I think that's what you were kind of going. Right. To. Yeah. The helium story was about this helium tank that I began to get very anxious and panicky about. Um, and it was a helium tank for the purposes of blowing up balloons at the place that I was working. Um, but I began, but I began to like see just, you know, kind of in front of me, imagine all the different ways that this helium tank could go wrong. And it just didn't help when the delivery person said, if it tips over, it'll turn into a projectile missile. Uh, right. Um, but one of the, one of the aspects of that experience was surprise the way that sometimes our health has, has surprises. And it's actually probably most of our health concerns have some degree of a surprise. Like it just showed up out of the blue, wasn't necessarily expected. You know, surely we don't plan many of us for health crises or things that we're concerned about. And so part of healthcare, I think that we need to question and that we need to really look at is, is there healthcare available when it's needed? when the surprise emerges? Or 
is it six or 12 months down the road through a convoluted process of mm. paperwork and applications and wait lists, or is it available when it's needed? And for veterans, that's a question that that's a big question because the VA does offer healthcare. It also has its own challenges because it does have a gatekeeping system called eligibility and what you're eligible for and what you're not eligible for. And if you're eligible for a lot, then it can be quite a good system. If you're not eligible for quite as much, it can be a little more of a patchwork system. Um, but veterans don't exist in a bubble. They live in neighborhoods with families and you know, often those people are not getting their health care at the VA. So, so we've got something of a disconnect when the veteran goes home, for example, with the helium experience and says that was really difficult. It might be really helpful to talk to someone or a counselor. If my friends or family or neighbors don't get their health care at the VA, we now can't share wisdom. We can't share health care wisdom. They can't say to me, hey, I've got a great counselor I recommend. Hey, I've got a great therapist you might really like, someone that lives right up the street. If you're in the VA system now, that's kind of the only system that you're in. And I think we lose a lot because I think family and friends and neighbors can be a source of tremendous help and tremendous know-how. But when our healthcare systems don't align, and one family member has one system and a veteran has a VA system and a neighbor has a different system, all of a sudden we can't share know-how and we can't share knowledge with one another. And we end up in communities that have a hard time supporting one another because it's a real fractured kind of knowledge system. Mm. So I think, I think that's that conversation needs to be included in our understanding of healthcare that when surprises and unexpected things do show up, what is the path? What is the accessibility to reach out and get the help one needs? If, if the help is six or 12 months down the road, now the problem can actually get worse as opposed to a little dose of medicine can sometimes can go a long way very early on in the process. Mm -hmm. But, but if, if things are left both in our physical health, in our mental health, in our spiritual health, if they're left to fester often just get worse. And then the treatment has to be all the more intense and costly. Um, whereas it could have been something simpler earlier on. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that little bit sounds like one could use some of what you just said, I think as an argument for privatizing the, the VA so that everybody around the country's healthcare system is integrated in a privatized way. But that's not what you're saying, is it? No, there is a there's a little piece of privatization which does help that issue a little bit. So for example, I live in a major metropolitan city and there is, there's never really been a case that I've had where something was not available. Some kind of provider or medical provider was not available, but that's not necessarily the case um, in all parts of our country. Right. In rural areas, it, a VA can be very difficult to access. It can be hours away. And so privatization allows for that veteran to go to some place that is closer. Um, but it's just, it, it's actually further down the rabbit hole because now the veteran, it, it actually has complicated things for the veteran because mm -hmm. it now throws them into the whole system of payment and payment for services. And it does create a liability um, so it's actually it's actually breaking up the system. The the VA itself is a your healthcare is both paid for and delivered in one sitting. So you mm -hmm. don't end up with bills. You don't see any of the behind the scenes paperwork. You see very little of that, and so that that burden is very light in a fully integrated VA system. But in a privatization system, that begins to break apart and there begins to be a payer who is separate from the provider. And that 
puts the veteran, that puts the bur a burden on the veteran, which I think that burden needs to be factored into healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there are, there are some, there are some real world challenges around our VA system in that the VA works best where there are concentrations of veterans, right? So it, uh, it, it can work better in bigger cities. It can be challenged in places where there is less concentration of veterans. And that's something that has emerged over the past few decades. World War II had quite a lot of veterans all throughout the society. Uh, but as time has gone on, the number of veterans as a percentage. Uh-oh. Looks like we lost Kelly. Oh, man. Oh, okay. All right. You're back. I'm back. Yeah. yeah. The, the internet, I can't, I can't the tell you exactly where you fell off either. <laughs> That's all right. We'll, we'll continue on and I'll read my comments back in as okay. we go along. That was an interesting remark about uh, rural health care. And for those veterans in particular that have difficulty accessing VA in more rural areas, uh, it would be true of, of anybody in rural areas accessing healthcare. It's a chronic problem. That's uh, right. uh, uh, you can assume that a more comprehensive healthcare system would address that. But uh, again, it's a matter of providing the resources and those resources have to be paid for. I might mention that there are two bills uh, as of a couple of years ago the uh, House bill, um, let's see, a Senate bill uh, 1723 uh, uh, promoted by Senator Sanders and uh, House Resolution 3459. These are a couple of years old, but they would actually provide more funding for the VA, in particular, uh, funding more staff, infrastructure, and what have you. They're probably not going to be enough to meet the challenge, but the, that is something that is in the, in the works. I should mention also that the VA, there are something like 21 or 22 million veterans in this country. Almost half of them get their health care through the VA, some 9 million people. So it is, it, is a, it is, a, is a vital and necessary service. The other thing is that you, Michael, you mentioned about, uh, you know, not realizing that you had these sort of reactions to uh, low-flying combat aircraft mm -hmm. or flying on civilian populations. Uh, that sort of reaction is not something that your average civilian reacts to. Right. And it's something that a, uh, a veteran like yourself, and certainly from my, my, my experience, it's put me in the ditch almost a couple of times uh, listening to Blue Angels mm. fly over a treetrop level. And that's sort of a unique, uh, more or less a unique sort of experience of veterans, not civilian ex experience. And the VA has actually got experience with dealing with those sort of um, reactions and uh, I actually have gotten good health care at the VA uh, dealing with those sort of reactions in a way how to mitigate it and and deal with it and uh, it not it's not like it goes away but you can deal with it and the VA's got that experience which it must the civilian sector doesn't necessarily have so that's one of the reasons why the VA is as a as a, not necessarily as a standalone but perhaps in the future an integrated organization would serve those special uh, healthcare needs of veterans. Yeah, I'd like really like to emphasize that for listeners um, that, at least for me, I do use the Veterans Administration healthcare system. Um, I go to the the hospital here in the Puget Sound area um, at least once a month because I I have MS and I have to get an infusion, and I've used it in um, St. Louis as well. And I have to say both places. Um, I, I got good health care. Um, I appreciate the uh, um, the people who work there. Um, everyone's been wonderful. Uh, I would say a little bit more convoluted here in the Seattle area in terms of uh, making appointments and stuff like that. Um, but but it's it's all manageable. But the thing I want to emphasize is what you just said about their experiences that we have that if I go to and that's the reason I brought up um, when Kelly was talking about the helium. Um, most civilians are not going to have that experience that Kelly had or 
have the experience I had with the plane. And then there's other things, the rates of suicide and why and the guilt and all that. Um, most doctors in the civilian world are not going to have had many of any patients who fall into the same categories as we do in terms of how to address that. So I guess for the listeners, if you think whenever, if anyone, if you ever start to think is the VA healthcare system needed, just remember that veterans are facing things that most no one else faces and that most doctors are not going to be able to really provide the same level of understanding. Uh, so, um, so that's one thing I really wanted to, to emphasize. And, and one other thing that Kelly, you were saying, um, let me see, I, wanna, I wrote it down. The thing about the contracting, you were saying contracting out um, and how so much of the healthcare is starting to be contracted, similar to how the military has started to contract a specific task, uh, you know, to civilian contractors. And, and real quick, let me give you an example of one that I think is a problem is contracting, getting food to soldiers who, who are out in combat areas. Um, and the reason I feel like that's a problem is because when I was in combat and I knew that whoever was delivering the food, because they were soldiers just like me, that for sure they were gonna get the food to me. And I'm not trying to diminish contractors, but it's not the same thing as you knowing that I got to get this food to this soldier or whatever the thing is, because that soldier is just like me. We're the same, you know, contractors and soldiers aren't the same. So I don't believe, maybe I'm wrong about this, but if the tough, if, if the going got really tough, like their life was totally on the line, like they might get killed to get, to get me my food or to get me whatever it is, I don't know if they're going to put the same kind of effort into getting, into getting me my food, you know? So, um, so I really think that's a problem uh, that we're contracting certain things out that need to be connected to the soldier because soldiers understand soldiers, sellers understand sellers, et cetera. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on that as it relates to the VA, you or, or Mike. Yeah, the, secu the civilian healthcare system, I would say, has thousands, millions of some of the best providers. So this is not about the people because there are really, really wonderful healthcare sure. providers. Yeah. Um, but, but it is a question about the, the system of it. And our civilian healthcare system is a hot mess. Um, and I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone that, that wouldn't agree in some degree that that it is so inefficient um it is so misaligned and that the we really haven't wrestled well with the profit motive that exists in our healthcare and the ways that that then plays out um we we've had to come face to face with it around the opioid addiction mm -hmm. um, but it's been there all along it's been there for quite a long time and, and we still haven't really come face to face with how do we understand profit um, when it comes to things like you said, life and death kinds of endeavors. Uh, and and that, that's a real question. So the, the privatization is just sending both dollars and veterans into a civilian healthcare system that's such a mess. You, you couldn't say it's sending them somehow into a better system. It's, it's hardly better. Mm. I, would, I would say the VA probably is a better system in terms of organization, in terms of it, its mechanism. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a real question. It, it, exists, it exists in the same degree, like you said, Michael, around contracting out really specific tasks that happen in combat and whether it, there's a question of both profit and moral responsibility. Who is responsible for the burden of war when a country goes to war? Is it, is it those, is it that country and those people or is, is, are, is it okay for other factors and other motives to begin to enter in? 
Right. Right. And let me just say real quick. Yeah. And and I agree. I'm not trying to speak negative about the people. Um, It is the system because, you know, if if you're not having experiences with certain kind of patients, that's not your fault. It's, It's just that those are the patients you have experience with. <laughs> that's that's all there is to it. So I just wanted to make that clear. Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Go ahead. All right. Um, so Kelly, an- another thing you brought up when you were talking, um, you talked about people around veterans needing to be healthy. So, you know, your family, your friends, your coworkers. Um, and you also talked about healthcare as a public good. If you could talk a little bit about what you were thinking um, when you said those things. Yes. Um, can you say the first part of the question again? Yeah, because you talked about um, people, everyone around veterans oh, that's right. needing to be healthy. Right. And um, I felt like there was an intersection with the public good right. when you said that. Yes. So one of the things, I am a fan of VA healthcare. I think there's a lot of things that are going right about it. And um, I think Suzanne Gordon articulates a lot of those things in her book, Wounds of War, and counters some of the narrative that it's always broken or veterans are always waiting in line because that's not true. That does happen sometimes, but that is not happening every day as an everyday occurrence. There's a lot of veterans getting very good healthcare from the VA. so one of the challenges is when you have VA healthcare, if you're a veteran, it covers you, but it does not cover anyone else. <coughs> so it doesn't necessarily cover a spouse. It doesn't necessarily cover children. It, so we have a system, we have a model that's very much an employer-based healthcare model where the only way family members get healthcare is through like a primary provider. So the VA has mimicked that model a bit. And so, uh, so, but, but because the, well, basically family members are unable to get healthcare at the VA. So if you are that primary provider of healthcare and your system cuts off your whole family members, now you're in a pickle. Like it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, my family at the moment has four people and we have three different healthcare systems that kind of cover different members. And so I think we can say healthcare systems take a lot of time and energy and effort just to understand them, just to navigate them. They're like a complete foreign language. And half the time things don't make sense. Like you can get a different bill for a provider than for the office space that your healthcare took place in. Like those things just, right, they don't make any sense. They, they, they defy common sense, mm-hmm. um, right? But we are, there. there is a collective aspect to healthcare and we can only be as healthy as the communities around us. So a, a veteran, even if they have full access to all the services at the VA, still is not still needs their own community to be healthy and to have access to healthcare so that they can be healthy. Uh, right. So it's a collective effort just because you provide it to one doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be able to rise above the whole community that they are surrounded around. So, right. We need everyone to be healthy or to have the best shot at health care, wellness, being thriving individuals because that lifts all of our boats. Um, In terms of healthcare as a public good, uh, just about two months ago, one of my kids had a fever. And so that was, it was happening while coronavirus is still a major concern. And so I began wondering if we should go in for a test and test the whole family. So I'm talking about all this with my neighbor who had just a week before gone for a coronavirus test. And so he had all the know-how. So he was able to say, here's the website, here's how you log in, here's the location where it's at, and provide a whole lot of information in one swoop, which then allowed me to make an appointment the same day with all of that knowledge. 
right? Like it was a knowledge sharing situation that then allowed for immediate and swift testing. So that is how healthcare functions sometimes as a public good, because it's like a road we all travel. And so he had traveled it and was able to say, here's how that road works. And so I was able to get us tested like pretty, pretty soon. I would say within 48 hours of getting that information without that information, it probably would have taken longer. There probably would have been much more questions like, should I, shouldn't I, how do you find the system? Where is it at? And so in that sense, it's there, there's a collective aspect to it all. Um, right. It's not, it's not, like I said earlier, it's not like a preference around a cup of coffee. It's not like, well, do you like dark roast or do you like light roast or do you like it with milk and sugar or do you like it in a latte form, right? Like these are really, these are really important knowledge sharing. And so when it is more of a public good, because for that particular case around coronavirus testing, my neighbor and I were covered under the same healthcare provision. Hmm. And so we were able to share knowledge. Had that not been the case in the county that I live in and his health insurance had one system for getting a coronavirus test and mine had a totally different system for getting a coronavirus test, all of a sudden it's so inefficient like in getting everyone the testing and the information and the knowledge they need to promote health. Right, right. So uh, just to follow up on what you're saying, yeah, it, the, the Veterans health care is, is everybody's health care, really. Uh, but also veterans health care is something that is everybody's responsibility. Uh, uh, it's public money that sent uh, people into uniform and to wars. And so what liabilities they have coming back from the military service and or wars, that's a public responsibility. It's a moral responsibility. And it, it is, as you say, a collective responsibility. Did you want to respond to that, Kelly? Um, I I would say I agree, uh, <laughs> and and I think if you ask most veterans, they're going to say, "Well, we don't just want healthcare for us, as if it's some kind of like individual merit um, system that you like earned it for yourself." when you like then look at your family and they don't have it right right like i think i think a lot of veterans and i think this would be an interesting question to ask mm -hmm. the veteran communities um right like how how it's working for them in terms of a collective sense um a lot of times i hear in the public space that veterans um, deserve the health care that they have, that they earned it. And, and I don't disagree with that, but I just don't think it's the whole story. Um, because I think there's a, I think a lot of veterans would like to, to expand that definition and say, well, uh, who, who, who of my neighbors and my friends and my family doesn't also need or deserve health care. Um, so, so I do think there's a lot of merit to the question of the VA being a model of healthcare for the entire country. That to take what we have and to expand it as the model um, for healthcare for all, I think could be a strong solution to the mess that we've got now. Right, uh, I think we have about five or six more minutes left. Um, just to expand just briefly on what you just said, you and Mike said, uh, the fact that we're in the middle or we don't even know where we are really in this coronavirus, we know we're not at the end of it. It's not turning a corner like someone keeps trying to tell us. I think it has, it clearly has, I, I think it's a fact um, that this crisis has shown that our healthcare system doesn't work well. Um, and it's shown, as, as you've said, that it's a public good for us to have a well-working healthcare system for everyone. And that our economy, in fact, is dependent 
on having healthy people. That we cannot have a growing, expanding, or even one that's just simply sustaining us if people are not healthy or afraid that they're going to get sick. And while this only has happened once in a hundred years so far, um, there's there's evidence that this could happen more times, and it certainly is going to happen again. So we need to put together a healthcare system and an economic system uh, that will allow for things like this happening. And yet, of course, things couldn't stay the same. You know, everybody wouldn't be able. Whatever system we had, you couldn't act exactly the same way. But we don't have to be in this time of desperation um, with so many people wondering what's going to happen next and totally afraid if we had systems, our healthcare system and our economic system that work better for everyone. So for me, it feels like the public, you know, when you say the public good, all we have to do is look at what's going on right now and say, oh, what could be, what, what kind of systems could we have had in place? <laughs> Right. So that if this happens again, which it will, let me say to everybody that's listening, this will happen again. How can we be ready for it? Sorry about the noise. I agree. Um, and this is hopefully maybe shed some light on the ways that our health care for many, many civilians is connected to employment. And, and there's a certain level of absurdity in that. Um, because it, it, it prevents it, well, it can prevent qu quite a lot of employment related decisions, but, but it doesn't make any sense that you would lose healthcare if you lose your job or that if you're in between jobs that you would lose healthcare, or if you, even on a more like positive note, if you want to leave one position and have a promotion in a different organization, you can end up with a gap in health insurance that can be very problematic. And then you can have trouble with the next health insurance, especially now that we're having questions again around pre-existing conditions, uh, right? Like those things don't make any sense. We want people to be able to embrace where they're at. We want them to be able to move around, take promotions, leave a job, start a new business. Like we want all of those things to happen, like for there to be flexibility, for there to be entrepreneurship. I can, I can list three colleagues who very at the moment, mid-career would very much like to venture out on their own and start their own business, be an entrepreneur, but they can't and they don't because of healthcare. And it's not even just healthcare for them, but they are the healthcare provider for their family. Their, their health insurance covers their family and, and that would go away if they were to venture out to start a small business. So there's not even just a negative side. I think we prevent and forego a lot of creativity and independence and trying new things because our for, for most folks, their healthcare is tied to their employer and their employment situation. And, and, and that's, I just, I think there's a better way to do it, to really encourage folks to, you know, follow those dreams, take that promotion and not have to, not have to be held back by health insurance problems and concerns that they really can try those new things. So I think we need to detach it from employment and have it be much more of something like public schools, public roads, water system, that it's there and that you can live your life, try new things. But it, it, you know, if something bad happens, you don't lose it. If your company goes under, you don't lose your health care. Right. And Wanda Sykes, you know, the comedian, she cracked a joke about, and I, I'm not going to try to crack the joke, but because I, <laughs> wouldn't be able to. Um, but she was talking about how when a person goes to a restaurant and you have a server, don't you want that server to be healthy? Do you want them to have the flu? No, you don't. I mean, they're serving your food. And there's so many healthcare workers, I mean, not healthcare workers, excuse me, um, restaurant workers, low wage job people who don't have healthcare or don't have access to he adequate healthcare, but yet they serve, they, they do jobs where they have contact 
with the public, with every day, hundreds of people. See, that doesn't make any sense. But yet that that's the, the system we have. So we have like two or three more minutes. Mike, do you have any anything else you'd like to ask Kelly? No, I think that uh, but the points Kelly uh, made about uh, collective responsibility and collective good are, are really very, very important. And it ties into healthcare for all, really, not just veterans and their special needs. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So Veterans for Peace has this Save Our VA campaign. Uh, I guess it's SOVA is kind of uh, the way we say it, um, because we believe it's very, very important uh, for there to be uh a VA healthcare system for obviously for veterans, but we do support um, that there's healthcare system for everyone, access for everyone. So again, thanks Kelly for being on the show and I'm sure we'll have you back. Uh, any closing comments, Mike? No, just to thank Kelly. And uh, again, sort of the tail end of the uh, introduction, this is uh, Veterans for Peace 92, the radio program KODX 96.9 FM the archives for these shows will be posted there and also on vfp92.org thank you for listening good to be with you both all right that's the end of the show but before we go let me give credit where credit is due our theme music untouchable and transition music spanish winter is from the passion hi-fi you can find his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. Thanks once again to Kelly Wadsworth for talking to us this week and sharing her knowledge about veterans health care. Tune in next time. We air every fourth Wednesday of the month, 6 to 7 p.m. Pacific time on KODX 96.9 in Seattle or listen to a live stream at kodxseattle.org. You can also find our previous episodes at kodxseattle.org. So until then, stay in the struggle, power to the people.